this is a time, Christians, if you need to pray, uh, this is the time to pray. Jesus said, men are always to pray and not to lose heart. If you feel like you've lost uh, heart on something and, and you're full of anxiety, you're full of issues of life, Jesus said, don't take no worry about tomorrow. There's enough problems of itself. And we see the day approaching. We're to convocate more. We're to come into fellowship more and pray more, um, not only for us and our fellowship, but just for the return of the Lord. Lord, may your kingdom come. As he told us to pray for that. And uh, we see it approaching. James says, be patient like a farmer who, seeds, who sows the seed. Be patient, farmer. The Lord is at the door. He's going to make it right. The question and the issue at hand is, how many will be ready, how many are ready, and how many are we letting them know that Jesus is coming? And uh, our heart goes out to those believers in persecuted countries throughout the, throughout the world. We pray for them every Sunday. We pray for what the Lord gives to us uh, through you guys, uh, the, the gifts and, and offerings that you give to the Lord. There's a box in the back that you can, you can put it there as the Lord leads you to give. And uh, we want to pray for that as well, that God will honor it. And we want to use that uh, because there's so many needs, so many needs in the persecuted world, so many needs for pastors and Bibles, and especially now. I mean, there are Christians all over the world dispersed. Um, we pray for that and pray for our nation. There's some very important elections coming. There's some important things happening, and we cannot fall asleep. If the nation is the way it is, it's because Christians have forgotten to pray and forgotten to be salt and light. So let's be salt and light, and let's ask the Lord for his power and strength. Lord Jesus, we come to you as a church, Lord, as a body, a family of believers who are seeking you, Lord. I, we ask and pray for it, Lord God, our brothers and sisters throughout the world that are being persecuted. Lord, it is a blessing disguised in, the, in, in difficulties because you said, blessed are you if you suffer for my name's sake. So they persecuted the prophets in that same manner. Lord, we pray for them that they would be, uh, Lord, not only encouraged, but they would be strengthened and they would be protected, Lord, from the evil uh, that is in this world, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, that you have protected so many and they have fled from one nation to another, Lord. Uh, but we do pray for the families who've lost loved ones and, and who've lost children and families, Lord, at the hand of this evil man. Lord, we ask you, Lord, that your retribution will come, Lord, and in its due time. We know it's coming. We know it's, it's, it's written in your word, Lord, that you will not wink at these things and that you will make sure, Lord, that uh, your righteousness will be throughout the earth, Lord, when you come. So, Lord, I pray for our fellowship here that we would be faithful to pray for them. Thank you, Lord, for the offerings and, and re receive, Lord God, today that you would use it, Lord, uh, as, a, as an aroma unto you, Lord God, that we give worship through that way. Uh, not only our songs, our giving, our attitudes, our living, Lord, the study of your word, we offer that to you, Lord God, and may you use it, Lord. May it go, Lord, for the rewards that we will get in eternity, Lord, the souls of men, who will be saved because we gave. Maybe we gave a dollar, maybe we gave two dollars. And that went to a missionary who shared the gospel in a village and, and they came to Christ. So we don't know what, what's happening, but Lord, in eternity we'll know and we'll rejoice, Lord, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we'll be rejoicing at the fact, Lord God, that you save, that you are a God who saves and loves mankind. Well, Lord, we ask you tonight, uh, today, as we partake of your word, that you give us your spirit to illuminate it, to understand it, and to apply it, Lord. Help us not to leave, Lord, today with the notion that we just came and, and heard some information, Lord, but we came and we've been challenged to change because, Lord, you want us to grow in the image of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me take your seat and open up to Luke chapter 5. 
Luke chapter 5. Um, as you're turning there, um, I, I'm going to take a step of faith right now. As I was sitting and, and, and worshiping the Lord, the Lord gave me a passage to read. Uh, I don't get this much often, but I pray that it's for somebody today. And, um, and, and the Lord just reminded me, uh, this is the cure for anxiety. This is the cure for anxiety. If it's for someone here or somebody watching or listening, uh, it's just the scripture. May the Lord use it to minister to you. This is why I tell you, Jesus says, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds that are in the sky. They don't sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Can any of you add a single cubit to your height by worrying? And why do you worry about your clothes? Learn about the wildflowers of the field, how they grow. They don't labor nor spin their thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like this. If that's how God clothes the grass in the field, which are here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear. For idolaters, the Gentiles, the heathens, they eagerly seek these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, shall be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So if the Lord had given me as I was worshiping the Lord, and just one word came out of my mind is the cure for anxiety. Many people have anxieties today because they're worried about things that uh, are coming or headed or they're in, in the midst of. Uh, the Lord wants to tell you, don't worry about them. He's got them. He's got the future in his hand. He's, remember the old song we used to sing when we were little kids? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. He knows what he's doing. Remember, he's singing. He's got Mark. He's got Gabby in his hands. He's got Roy and Carol in. Amen. You can put your name there. And, uh, and, and, and that, oh, he restores our soul. Doesn't it say that in, in, in Psalm 23? He restores our soul. How? By the word of God. Take in Bible. Feed Bible in. Worries go out. That's kind of how it goes on. Bible in, worries out. So um, we're back in Luke chapter 5. Sorry about that. I just had to be faithful and obedient to the Lord. I believe the Lord was telling me to do that. Let's read what it says. The call of Levi. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a great banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A big important part there. And where you are today... Um, with the Lord. We'll put you in one of those categories, okay? And then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? 
but the days will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one wears a, tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old, gar, uh, old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts a new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, it'll spill, and the skins will be ruined. But the new wine should be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new because they say, the old is better. Uh, when we've been studying Luke, Luke is a fascinating gospel because there's so many things in Luke that are unique, are not found in any other gospels. Some of the same stories are there, but Luke adds on a dimension about Jesus that it's unique to the other gospels. John is very unique. If you study the gospel of John, there's stories in there and, and there's accounts in there that are not found in any other gospel. But Luke is so detailed that if you just read Luke on its own, you realize this information is not in Mark or in Matthew. This information that, about Jesus is so unique. But we read the stories in Matthew and in Mark, and we know the stories in, but Luke kind of brings a new light to what Jesus said, especially about salt and light, especially about wineskins. What's the, what's the saying here? It's not found in any other Gospels. It's the last verse in chapter 5. No one after drinking the old says... I want, the old, uh, I want the new one because he says the old is better. It's a great answer to maybe one of your questions today. Old wineskins, new wineskins, what does it mean? The old wineskin says the old is better after drinking the new one. What does that mean? We'll get to that in a moment. But it's unique. Luke is unique of all the Gospels because of the, of the details and very familiar scenes in the story. Um, Luke gives us a new uh, a new paradigm, a new understanding of it because it talks about it from accounts of people that he interviewed. Remember, Luke interviewed hundreds of people regarding the life of Jesus. He interviewed Mary. He interviewed the disciples. Luke was not one of the apostles, but he relates the story probably better than, than the disciples themselves. And the fact that he was an eyewitness not only to the life of Jesus, but also to the life of Paul. Acts is Luke chapter 2, you would say. The ministry of Jesus Luke, the ministry of Jesus after he ascended through the apostles, through the Holy Spirit, is the book of Acts. And they go quite well together. If you put them together, it would be quite, quite a story. But the Bible, in this passage here, the, the book of Luke is, has one theme in mind, salvation. Salvation. Salvation to all mankind. While Matthew focuses in on the Jews and the response to the, to the Messiah and what they need to do, Luke emphasizes the whole world, the whole humanity, how we're to respond. Jew or Gentile does not matter. He's the same. Jesus is the savior of all men, especially of all those who believe, right? He is the savior of all humanity, and he comes as the son of man, not just the son of God, not just the son of David, but the son of man from Adam to Jesus, all right? Jesus was a man. His genealogy proves it without a doubt. He's also God, Genealogy proves it. He is God incarnate. But Luke has a unique thing. He looks at sinners. Well, we would see sinners and go, Jesus was very benevolent to, to sinners. I'm glad for that because I'm a pretty big sinner myself. I'm glad Jesus was called a friend of sinners. But there's also a group of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who come, in a sense, to our rescue. And what I mean by that is he, they highlight things that we need to make sure that we understand. The stories about Pharisees and Sadducees are not for your neighbor. They're not for the guy down the street, 
They're not for the, the guys that you think need it. The stories about Pharisees and Sadducees are for me and for you so that we don't become like that. That's the story of the Pharisees. We automatically tune them out and say, oh, that's it's got to be for someone else. That surely can't be for me. But the Pharisees come to our rescue in the sense because they teach us a lot about what we are not to be. And here's one of them. Very important story. Now, let's talk about Matthew. Let's talk about Matthew. Let's go to the first slide. And I said enough on the first slide. Let's go to the second slide. The account of Luke and now the account of Matthew. Matthew says in verse 27, there was a guy named Levi... And you say, well, is that Matthew? Well, I'll show you in a moment. He was a tax collector sitting at a tax office, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, this is very usual. If you know the story, the background, the culture of it, it's very, very simple to understand. In those days, Jerusalem, Israel, the land area of Israel was divided into about four parts. Four parts. You had a, a regional governor in the area of Jerusalem, and eventually became Pontius Pilate. That's why he was only governor of the Jeru uh, Judea over that area. We see that at the end of the, of the Gospels, Jesus goes to Pilate. But not only does he go to Pilate, where does he go also? Say it loud. Herod. Herod. Why did he go to Herod? Because Jesus was from the area of Nazareth. And because he was from Nazareth, he was from Galilee, they told Pilate, hey, you want to get out of this? You don't want to be anything to do with this guy. This guy's got a lot of problems. He's got a lot of followers and a lot of haters. Um, he's from Galilee. Send him to Herod. Why? Because the area of Israel was totally divided, and what you had was different parts. You had the Herods, and you had Pontius Pilate. And up north, where Jesus lived, in the area of Nazareth, was a guy named Herod Antipas. And he is the Herod that Jesus goes to on trials where he wants him to do miracles, but Jesus does no miracles. He says nothing, and he just gets rid of him, gets rid of Jesus, sends him back to Pilate. But there's another part next to the area where Jesus lived, and that was the area of Philip. Philip the Tetrarch was called. Philip the Tetrarch, meaning a fourth. He, covered over, he governed over a fourth of the landmass of Israel. And Philip was a very benevolent guy. And he had a lot of peace. There was a lot of peace in the area. That's why Jesus, when he goes up, to, when he goes to get away from the crowds, he goes up to that area of Caesarea Philippi to teach his disciples. Remember that story where he goes and he teaches uh, what they call the gates of hell. He goes up to uh, Mount Hermon and he begins to teach it. But he oftentimes withdrew there because there was peace. But because there were sections, every time you went from one area to the other, you had to pay a toll. You had to pay a tax. And on each one, at, at the border, at the border of each section, you had a tax office. You had a toll booth. I've been to Florida. Have you guys been to Florida? It seems like every freeway that I went was a toll booth, was a toll tax. And so we got to get on, and I got lost, and we got to get back on, and we had to pay another thing. And uh, At least here in California, we paid through our taxes. The roads are maintained. But in Florida, you pay through the toll booth. And so imagine trying to go from Capernaum to Galilee, you would pay a tax. In Mark chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus went from the one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, and this is the reason why. He was going from the land of, uh, of Antipas, Herod Antipas, to the land of Philip, and there was a tax. And lo and behold, who was sitting in that toll booth was Levi. Uh, it was not a coincidence. Jesus exactly knew what he was doing. Everything he did was according to God's plan. There was a calling on this man's life, and he walked by and he calls him, Levi, you come and follow me. 
and he left everything. It says he immediately left everything, so he began to follow him. Now, Levi had been worked on by the ministry of John the Baptist. It's something that had happened in Israel. A revival had occurred, and people were prepared to receive the Messiah. They were prepared to receive the Lord. So a lot of times when Jesus walked up to people and said, follow me, it was because the ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry that God gave John the Baptist to call people to repentance and get their hearts ready, make way straight the way of the Lord, was those people were ready. So when Jesus showed up, they were willing to accept and believe because he John the Baptist had made people ready. And that's the beautiful thing about that. that. That's our ministry as well. We make sure that we share Christ so that when the Lord pricks their heart, when the Lord touches their heart to come, they're ready. The soil has been made ready. Remember this parable of the soil? It had to be a good soil. It had to be a fertile soil. That's what we share. We sow, we water, but the Lord gives the increase, right? But John had been faithful. He had been faithful to prepare that heart. Levi was there. Jesus says, come and follow me. I'm ready. He count the cost. He's ready to go. But this was a, a post. This was a tax office. And they're exactly right. I mean, culturally, background is perfect. The Bible's so right. He didn't say it was you know, some kind of building. It was a toll booth. It was really just a, a table. Somebody walked up, and you're transporting goods from one, end of the, from one sea to the other side of the sea, usually fish, usually uh, uh, transporting goods for fishing industry. You pay a tax. You want to walk to the other side, you pay a tax. So Jesus is right there paying the tax. Come and follow me. But immediately, uh, Levi does something interesting. By the way, his name is Matthew. His name is Matthew. Why, uh, how do we know that his name is Matthew? Because in the, when they called the disciples, the list of the disciples, they don't call him Levi. They actually call him Matthew the tax collector. So his name was Levi. Uh, but when the disciples are named, he's called Matthew the tax collector. And it's in the, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Mark, they call them Matthew the tax collector. So we know it's, it's Levi here, the wonderful story of how he followed him. But Matthew does something different. Levi does something uh, quite unique, and hopefully there's our hearts too. Look at verse 29. Levi hosted a great banquet for him. And in this house, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. So here's the story. Here comes Matthew Levi. We'll call him Matthew Levi for, for long. And uh, he is excited about the Lord. He wants to know people about uh, He wants to make sure his friends and family and co-workers know about Christ. What's the best thing to do? Introduce Jesus with them. Bring a banquet together. Luke is full of banquets, by the way. When you read the story in, in the Gospel of Luke, there's always someone eating at a table. I like that. Um, we, we like that here. Is somebody, somebody eating? Why? It's a, it, it was a, a means of fellowship. It was a means of introduction. And the closest way you can get to know someone was through eating. You share the same meal. You share something in common. Uh, that's why the Passover meal is very important to the Jewish people then, still today. So Luke is always putting Jesus at banquets. Uh, and here's one of them. He's eating, but all the house is full of tax collectors and sinners, because this is the complaint of the Pharisees. Look at verse 30. The scribes and the Pharisees were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you guys do that? Now, the word sinner there has to do with immoral people. Uh, when it's used as a pronoun, it's actually talking about not, we're all sinners. We get it. But the Pharisees were very keen on pointing things out about people. That not only were they tax collectors, ugh, but they were sinners, immoral people that were there. They were uh, prostitutes. 
there were probably people that were there that were making money of the selling of their bodies, whether it was through means of a prostitute or, or what we would call today pimps. There was something in that house that attracted them to come to know Jesus. Now, this house was full of sinners, and the Pharisees did not like that. There was something unique about Jesus that people loved to hear him. The Bible says the common people, the people of the land, heard him gladly. The religious people did not want too much to do with them. In fact, Jesus infuriated them because he told them the truth. He told them their hypocrisy, and they did not like that. But sinners, those who knew were sinners, those who knew that practiced sin, they heard him gladly. Jesus never compromised with sin. He told it straight. He called them to repentance. We'll hear in a moment. But they heard him gladly. Why? He got to their level. He went down to their level. And you will see that in a moment here. They complained to the disciples. Why do, they, why do you guys eat and drink with them? Remember, it's, a form, it's the closest form of some fellowship there. There's a form of closeness. Jesus got down to their level. Look at the response of Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come, called, I have not call, uh, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is very interesting. Tax collectors were one of the most looked down people in that culture. They were impure. They were not kosher, you would say. They were one of the worst. Why? They were looked upon as traitors. First of all, they were Jews. Most of them were Jews who worked with Rome. They worked for Rome, and they collected the money for Rome, but they had a deal. They had a deal with them. Always the Jews making deals, right? The Jews are making a deal, and this was not a good deal. The deal was Rome would say, you collect 25% uh, for us, but you can collect anything you want on top of that. As long as we get our 25%, we don't care what you collect. You can collect 50, and we don't care. As long as you give us our 25, you can get whatever you want on top of that. And they did. Oh, and they did. And the people knew it. And so while they had to pay it because they have the authority of Rome, the people were furious at the tax collectors, not only because they were traitors, seen as traitors, but they were also uh, had no scruples. They would tax the people very heavily, and they would charge toll tax, they would charge tax for this, tax for that, sometimes 50, 60 percent, which they kept over the amount that Rome had required. And so they were very, very wealthy. And this is, the, this is the point. The tax collectors were making a lot of money off the people. And the people hated them. Collaborators were grown, traitors, but also had no scruples. They were uh, completely corrupt. And that's what the Pharisees hated them. They, they looked upon them with hate. The people hated them. And so for Jesus to have a tax collector in his group was, nobody would have understood it. It, was, it would have been amazing. It, it would have been... I mean, it's worse than what we think of the IRS. And whatever we think of the IRS and the emails that were lost and whatever, we, we, it's worst. In that culture, was they were looked upon as sinners, pronouns sinners. You guys are sinners. Uh, same level as a prostitute, same level as an immoral person is what they viewed them. For Jesus to have a tax collector was uh, unbelievable. Jesus also had a terrorist in, his, uh, in, his, in a group of disciples. Did you know that? And that we, and talk about terrorists, Simon the Zealot. You know, Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a group of people that uh, they would actually go into bands of raid against the Romans. They would kill soldiers. They would attack in small bands. They were so zealous for Israel. They wanted to bring Israel peace through, um, through means of violence. And that was Simon the Zealot. So he had a, a possibly Judas's care as probably a zealot. Possibly. Can't really be for sure. But you had people in the circle of Jesus 
that were very interesting people. Tax collectors, a big sinner, a fisherman, you had a, a, a terrorist, yet all of them changed. All of them were changed by the power of the Lord. So there's hope for us, amen? There's hope for us that we can come to know the Lord, and this is one of them. But look at his heart. His heart is to share Jesus with them. Look, come here. Come look what Jesus has done in my life. And he invites a great banquet. He makes a great banquet, and he invites all his people. Pharisees and, Sadducees, uh, Pharisees and scribes were there, and they began to complain. Jesus says, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. This was a common proverb. This was a common proverb of the day. Jesus was always relating to the proverb of the day because people knew it. This was not uncommon. This was a sure common proverb. They knew what Jesus meant. We're the ones that have to understand it. So let's understand what, what Jesus is trying to say here, uh, here. The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What does that mean? Uh, it means a healer, a doctor, has to get down to the level of the patient. Okay? If you're going to heal somebody or treat somebody, I've been in a hospital for this week, uh, the, the doctor has to come to the level of the patient. The, the doctor can't say, well, yeah, just whatever, you know, from a distant office, just give them this, doing that. Um, the doctor has to get down to the level of the patient. What the illness is, the doctor has to see it, has to treat it, has to make sure it's the right illness and make sure it's the right prescription to heal that sickness. Jesus does not say, well, yeah, we know what's a bunch of sinners, but just do what I do. You know, just, just follow along the best as you can, and you'll be all right. No, he goes with them. He talks to them. He deals with them on a level of, because he's God, that's his creation. He loves them. But he becomes like them in a sense of gets down to their level. A physician has to get her hands dirty, you would say. A physician has to get his hands dirty to deal with the sick. Jesus gets down to the level of sinners. He did not sin. There was no sin in him, the Bible says. He became sin, but he had no sin. And he becomes our sin on the cross. He bears our sin on the cross. But he had to deal with sinful people at their level. But the scribes and the Pharisees did not want to do that. The scribes and the Pharisees scoffed at them. The scribes and the Pharisees looked down on the people. And they said, you guys are the, they call them the people of the land. You guys are inferior to us the Pharisees. They had the religion of Judaism. They had the temple. They had the practices. They had the religion, the formality. What do did, what did that people know? They don't know anything. They're accursed, they said. These people are accursed. And the people hated the Pharisees. In fact, they were a stumbling block to people. People want to get close to God. The people want to draw close to the Lord, draw close to God's word. The Pharisees put all these blocks in front of them, these stumbling blocks, these walls. And they said, well, in order for you to be Followers of God, you had to be my disciple. And you had to do certain things, and you have to do certain ways, and you have to dress a certain way. And the people just said, we can't do this. We, we can't. I mean, we, all the weight of the law was put on them, but the Pharisees wouldn't lift a finger to do them. Amazing, isn't it? Jesus called their hypocrisy right there and then. The people knew it, but Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He called it out for what it was. But the Pharisees didn't like the people. Look what it says they eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, that's what they thought about Jesus. He was a friend of sinners. I'm glad they thought about that because um, he's, he's such a friend. He's such a friend to those who have fallen short. And Jesus said, the, the healthy don't need a doctor, but I have come to call the righteous. I have not called the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
uh, this is a typical Luke story, an account. Luke always gives us the, the, the paradox, gives us the contrast. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Uh, the prodigal son is the one who leaves the house. He spends all the money away in, in moral living, and he comes back. But he has a contrite heart. He has a broken heart for what he had done. Remember, he's eating with the pigs, and he's, you know, he's, he's feeding the pigs. He might as well eating the stuff that the pigs had. And he said, my servants in my father's house are better. They're doing better than me. What am I doing? He comes to his own senses, and he runs back home because he knows he's wrong. But the other story is the other son. Remember the other son? He's angry. He's angry that the father would actually bring him back. He's angry that, can you believe this guy? He is such a sinner. And I'm not. Dad, I've been here and serving you and done all this and that. All about himself. Because he thought that was what's necessary to have a relationship with his father. His father says, look, everything you have is, it's, it's, everything I have is yours. Equally shared. You can have anything you wanted. But my, your brother, my son, he was dead. Now he's alive. He's here. He should be rejoicing. There, he, the son was hating on the other brother because he was self-righteous. And Luke is on, goes on like that. Remember the story of the Pharisee and the publican? Not the Republican, you know, but the, the Pharisee and the publican was a tax collector. Um, the story is that the, 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 it's, it's an unbelievable story. Why? You looked at the stories. Oh, the Pharisee is a good guy. Look, he does all these things. You know, I, let, let's turn to it real quick. Turn a few chapters over to Luke chapter 18. Um, it, it works better when you read it. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Great story. Luke has always given us the contrast. Why? Salvation does not come through human effort or good works. Salvation comes as a free gift of God, but we have to receive it. We have to receive it and admit and recognize our sin in order to come to know the Lord. It requires humility, brokenness, to admit and recognize and turn to God. Here's a story. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable of those, about those who trusted in themselves. Classic example of Pharisees. Those who trusted in themselves and they were righteous, self-righteous, you would say, and looked down on everyone else. That sentence covers what a Pharisee is to a certain degree. The Pharisees also didn't have a value for the word of God. They changed it uh, and they made it more of a laws of men instead of the word of God. But in this case, this is what they, those who trusted in themselves and looked down on everyone else. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. The Pharisee took a stand and was praying like this. <clears throat> God, I thank you, not like other men. Yes, God, I'm here. Uh, I know been, heaven's been waiting for my prayer. That's my addition, but that's how I see him. Um, I thank you like I'm, like, I'm, like not, uh, I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterous, or even like this guy right here, this tax collector guy. Uh, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I get. Uh, there's, a, there's a document, there's a, a book, it's called the Didache. It's an early Christian writing. Uh, it explains a lot of what Christians believe and a lot of what the Pharisees believe. It basically explains the culture of the time of Jesus. And in this book, there's a that talks about the Pharisees, what they did and how they did things. And uh, they fasted twice a week, it says here. But they also gave a tenth of everything they had, and including everything. We're talking about from salt to pepper to cumin to your favorite recipes of uh, condiments. They gave every a tenth of everything they owned. It was amazing. They were so right 
and so righteous according to the law, they become self-righteous. And they had no room for God because they themselves, was a, they themselves were the law unto themselves. And it, look what it says here. But the tax collector, standing afar off, not even raising his eyes to heaven, but striking on his chest, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I like this other translation that says, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. That's a, that's a, it, you can get the same translation out of that. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Turn your wrath from me, a sinner. Beautiful, isn't it? Not coming with his own, not coming what I've done, what I did, who I am, what position I hold. But Lord, I am a sinner in need of your mercy. Please don't pour your wrath on me. I know I've sinned and I deserve it, but I know you're a merciful God. Please be merciful to me. And look what Jesus says. I tell you this, this one went down to his house justified, talking about the, 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 the tax collector, rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Those who are last will be first. Those who are first will be last. Those who think they're the closest to the kingdom, but have never entered in, are actually the furthest from the kingdom. Oh, Pastor, how does that work again? I'll say it again. Those who are close to the kingdom, but they don't enter in, are the furthest from the kingdom. Those who are far from the kingdom, but enter in, are the closest to the kingdom. I lose you guys? No? Okay. Uh, basically, what Jesus says is this. Look, you can be close to the kingdom. You can be close, but never enter in. You can know it. You can hear it. You may have a good standing in, in the church. You've been brought up in the church. Your dad was a pastor. You, that's why I pray for my kids, because I'd never want them to think that they're right because of me, or because I, I'm here, or because we come here, or because I have some kind of uh, you know, tag or name tag that says pastor on it. That's not the point. The point is, we all need to come in through the same way. By faith and repentance, we can be born again. Every single one of us, no matter where we're from or what we've done or not done. And see, the Pharisees looked at them and exalted themselves. They said, look, I, I'm practically been born into Judaism. I, I mean, I do all the right things according to the law. And we'll show you a little bit more. They didn't really do the law as it was intended to be kept. They kept the outward appearance of the law, but their hearts were so far from God. It was pathetic. It was horrible. And remember, the stories of the Pharisees are to teach us something about ourselves, right? It's not for the neighbor. It's not for the guy next door to you or the person sitting next to you. It's for us to understand that this is what could happen if we allow the things we've done to become the standard to our relationship with the Lord. And it's not supposed to be. Let's go back to Luke chapter 5. Let's continue with the story. Now that you know what these guys were about, Jesus replied to them, I've called not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why is that important? Because sinners need to repent. Now the question is, who is the sinner? Who are the sinners? The Bible tells us all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. Not one is right. Not one does right. That means every single one I've done. Now, that to you may seem like, oh, yes, I know it. I realize it. Maybe like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, you realize, Lord, I'm a sinner. Turn your wrath from me. But maybe some people will say, how dare he call me a sinner? Doesn't know how long I've been going to this church. And there's a monument named after me. And there's chairs named after me. And there's a whole week named after me. I'm not. A, I mean, they, they, I'm, I'm sure there are sinners in this world, but 
but pastor, man, come on. I mean, I, I just showed up today, and uh, I'm sure that I, I'm not. I mean, I mean, nobody's ever called me that. Um, the Bible says the word sin means a few things. Number one, you missed the mark. There's a standard. It's God, and it's not your neighbor. It's not your wife. It's not anybody else. It's God, and that standard of, of behavior and righteousness, you've fallen short of it. You missed it. It's like an archer who misses a bullseye. Missed the bullseye. Called a sinner. Called somebody uh, that misses the mark. The Bible also calls sinners those who inherited a sinful nature. Uh, a sinful nature from our parents, who they got from their parents, to their parents, to their parents, back to Adam. Meaning that we are bent toward disobedience to God. Inherently, we tend to behave the opposite than what God wants us to do. You say, limit, speed limit 65? I bet you here there are people who've gone 66, right? Or speed limit says 75. I'm sure somebody's gone here 78. And, and you don't mind because, hey, who's the government tell me to go 65? I mean, come on. I mean, the flow of traffic and I got to get to, you know, got to get to church at some, some point. Hey, you know, come on. And we have a behavior toward laws that challenges we like to challenge the laws. We like to challenge any kind of posting because who's to say? And so if God, you know, I, I, when I was 20, before I came to know the Lord, I would challenge the same thing. Who's got to tell me who I should live with or who I should I not live with? Who's got to tell me if I could tell this story or that story or be with this person or that? With, who's God? I almost sounded like Pharaoh. Who's this God? Moses, you know, God did not deal with me in his wrath and anger. He could have, but he didn't, thank God. But we challenge God as our nature, right? We see our kids, and I, and I see my kids, and I go, oh, man, uh, you, know, this, you know, this one behaves like mom, and it's, oh, how cool. It's, you know, it's, it's cool. And it's like you see some good traits of the parent, but then, then I see my kids, and they behave like me. And I go, who are these kids? Who, whose dad is their kid? You know, who, who is their dad? Where do they get that from? No. I see the good qualities, but then I see the tendencies to do what's wrong. Where do they get it from? Me. Nobody taught them that. And I could see it as they get older. Oh, boy, that's like me. Or, or mostly like my wife. But anyway, uh, that's, that's who we are. We inherit from our parents our nature. Uh, David said, from sin, in, in sin my mother conceived me. Now, it doesn't say that he was conceived in sin, like some kind of, you know, mom had a, uh, you know, some kind of rendezvous, and he was born. He was talking about in the, in the sinful nature of humanity, he was conceived with all the aspects of sin that we all have. David had recognized that all the aspects of sin nature was in him since birth. We all come from that way. And so the recognition of a sinner is to say, Lord, not only do I behave sinfully, but I have a nature in me that behaves sinfully. I am a sinner because I sin because I'm a sinner. I literally sin and miss God's mark and standard because I've fallen short. We're not perfect. That's really what the word means. And Jesus said that's a sinner who recognizes it. Okay? He's called those to repentance. But the righteous, and don't, don't, get, don't get caught up here with what the word righteous is. The word righteous simply means those who think they're righteous here, those who are self-righteous. If you think you're self-righteous, you don't call yourself a sinner. If you think you're right, you, don't call, you have no interest in calling yourself a sinner. But the Bible says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has called each and every one of us, including the Pharisees, to what? 
repentance. Now, in the book of Matthew, it says that he's called sinners. Luke adds in the word repentant. Here's the story. All of us have to turn from sin to God. That's what the word repentance means. All of us are going in one direction towards sin, death, and hell. God calls us. We hear his voice by the gospel. There's a conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we turn from sin. In this case, it works great. The cross. We run to the cross. That's repentance, okay? Knowing that you've sinned, knowing that who you are and what you're doing is wrong, and just stopping and not doing it anymore, it's not repentance. Repentance is a full turn. It's a full turn to God. It's not a full turn to a church or a religious organization. It's a full turn toward God and accepting his forgiveness and receiving his free gift of eternal life. That's repentance. It's on 180. Turn from one, one direction and turn to the other. Stopping and, and pulling over does not equal repentance. You have to stop, you have to turn, and you have to head toward God now. Israel knew that quite well. In the Old Testament, the word simply meant return to God. When you see them in the Old Testament, you're reading your Old Testament, it says, Israel, return to God. It's the word repentance. Repent and turn to God. If we turn, he'll heal us. And, and some of them did, some of them didn't, most of them didn't. And for the church of Jesus Christ in today's day, church, repent, turn to God, receive his healing, receive his forgiveness, receive his mercy that he wants to give us. But we have to turn to God. We have to turn, all of us, together. That's called a revival, isn't it? <laughs> if all of us turn together, it's called a revival when the church goes back to his first love. That's the change that needs to happen in every one of us. But we have to recognize that we have missed the mark, that we have, tur that we have turned to our own ways. Remember Isaiah 53? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each one to his own way. I believe this, I believe that, I believe the other. Who's to say who's right? But God laid on him the iniquity of us all. God laid on Jesus all of our sin and faults. That's the beauty of the gospel. Now, the gospel is calling sinners to repentance. That's the key. Now, people have tried to leave the word repentance out to saying, well, we don't say it. It might be nice. It sounds nice to people. They may accept it. The fact of the matter is, if people don't repent, he's not coming in. That's the point. You can change it all you want, but if people don't turn from sin, Jesus is not coming in. And it doesn't matter how you change it or how you use it. Just tell them that they need to, change, they need to turn to God. You know, in repentance, it's a full change. It's a change of thinking, a change of behavior, a philosophy of life that it's changed, it's different. It involves thinking, yes, a different thinking. It involves behavior, yes. I stopped smoking this, I stopped sleeping around, I stopped doing those things. It's a change. And if we're willing to repent, he's coming in. <laughs> if we don't repent, uh, you can come to church all you want, but he's not coming in. And that's what Jesus makes that emphatic. I call sinners to repentance. What? The Pharisee said, I'm glad you're talking to those guys. <laughs> they need repentance. I'm not called the righteous. That's right. We don't need Jesus. We have our religion. We have our form of doing things. We have our formalities. We have our, uh, you know, our, our, our structure. Let's keep reading. Verse 33. Then Jesus said to him, I'm sorry, then they said to Jesus, John's disciples fast and often say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. What's, up, what's the point? What's up with that? Jesus said to them, you, can make, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the groom will be taken away from them, 
and then they will fast in those days. All of a sudden, the question about fasting and praying. Jesus, they come to Jesus and look, John's disciples fast and they pray often. The Pharisees fast, uh, disciples pray and they pray and they fast and they pray often. But yours just eat and drink. He says, look, as long as the bridegroom's here, they don't need to do that. Jesus is the bridegroom. The Bible says Jesus, uh, it's the picture, the full picture of the bridegroom. We had a wedding this Friday. It's a beautiful wedding, right, Rick? Amen? And uh, Rick was the bridegroom. He was the, 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 the husband. He was the, he was the one that was standing there, the picture of Jesus, right? Uh, the bride, where's the bride? She's back there. Okay. Maria, we say hi. Uh, there's the bride. And it's a, it, the Bible tells us it's a mystery. Christ and the church, the bride and the bridegroom, right? The, uh, as long as Jesus is with them, there's no need to be and sorrow. There's no need to mourn. Jesus was with them. It was joy. It was a time of rejoicing. But there comes a time, look what it says, when he will be taken away from them. That's the cross. That's the death. That's the resurrection. That's when he's taken away from them. Then they will fast and they will pray. When Jesus ascends and he's taken away from us in a sense of his physical presence, then we need to fast and then we need to pray. That was the point. Now, should we fast and should we pray? Absolutely. Um, Jesus said, when you fast, when you pray, don't act like the Pharisees. Don't act like them that they, that they make it a show. They make it about themselves. They make it a point to tell everybody that they're fasting and they're praying and they turn their faces and they go, oh, fasting, isn't the Lord so awesome? He put this burden on me and I can't stand up. Brother, pray for me. I'm fasting again. And I will fast tomorrow again. And they make this show. And, and you know what? In, in, in the times of Jesus, it was the same. They would just, oh, they'll be walking along. And then they'll all of a sudden, oh, it's time to pray. And they would just lay out on the floor. And then they would just, oh, Lord. And, they, and they, you couldn't touch them. Otherwise, you know, they would become unclean. And, and they would make it a spectacle. Oh, look how righteous they are. He prays. Oh, man, he fasts. How many times he fasted this week? He said it was five times. You know, it, 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 they just, it was a show. Jesus says, when you fast, just go to your prayer closet and fast. And don't tell anybody, because God knows. <laughs> and he knows in secret. And he who knows in secret will reward you openly. So don't tell anybody. Just fast and pray. The important thing is to fast and to pray. And emphasize the word fast and pray. It's not just fasting or a diet or some kind of fad. It's fasting and praying. Why do we have to fast and pray? Is it, is it, is it a mandate? Is it some kind of how many days? Is it regulation? Mankind is always looking for that. You know, we're always looking for it. Is it three? Is it four? You know, how close do I get to that part until I start doing this? And we like formulas. We like postings and things on it. But the Bible says there's only one day in the Old Testament that it was necessary, commanded by God to, pray, to fast. Anybody know what that day was? One day in the Old Testament, commanded by God to fast. It was a day of atonement. It was a day of Yom Kippur. It was the only day commanded by God to fast. Now, they're to do it. They're to do it. The, uh, uh, the Jews did it often, uh, but it was only commanded by God one time to fast. It was the day of atonement. So do we need to do it at all? Yes. Now, fasting has to do with... Uh, pulling aside or pushing away the, the, the carnal appetites, the, 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 the normal appetites of our lives and submitting it to the Lord and say, Lord, you are more important than even food. I'm going to seek you 
and there's no one or nothing more important than you. Okay, that's what fasting is about. That's what we can, we can combine it with prayer. It's fasting and praying together. Why? Because it's not just denying yourself food. I could deny myself food because I forget to eat. You know, get up in the morning and you got to go, you got to rush, late, late lunch or early meeting or whatever it may be, you forget. But when you fast and when you pray, you're seeking the Lord and you say, Lord, this is worth more than food. It, it, this is better than a, a roast beef sandwich for lunch. It's getting close to lunchtime, so I know I'm going to be hitting home here in a minute. But, you know, this is more important than food, than jewels, than gold. This, seriously, guys, this is more important than anything you have in your life. You may have a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank, whatever it may be, but this book outweighs the value of what you have in the bank or what you have at home. There's nothing more important. So how much more important or how much more time should we need to spend seeking the Lord, being in his word, if that's the most important thing we have in our lives, if this is the most valuable thing we have, why do we neglect it so much? You know, sometimes our priorities are really kind of messed up. But fasting and praying brings us back to, the, to that point. Lord, there's no one more important than you. Nothing more important than you. Even my appetite, which is not bad. It's not an evil thing. Fleshly appetites are actually okay. If you're hungry, eat. But when you seek, when you seek the Lord, when you set your face to seek the Lord, whether it's direction, whether it's maybe just praying for someone that needs to be saved, and you're praying, Lord, I want to fast and pray for this person that needs to be saved. Whether it's praying for someone, salvation, your own direction, things about life and ministry and the direction God wants you to go, I encourage you to fast and to pray. Jesus never said, don't do it. He says, when you do it. He didn't say how many times you do it. He says, when you do it. That's why we don't regulate it. Because it says, the Lord moves you to fast and to pray. Should we? Yes. How many times? You ask the Lord how many times you should do it. You seek the Lord, and the importance of the Lord in your life will determine fasting and praying. That's how we determine it. But there's nobody here that's just legislated. It's just to say we should do it. Now, let's finish this part of the story. Last few verses. Verse 36, he told a parable to them. No one tears a patch from their garment and puts it on the old garment. Otherwise, not, one, uh, not only one, uh, he will tear the new one, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will spill and the skins will be ruined. But the new wine should be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new because he says the old is better. Let's wrap this up and bring it into a close. The patch and the wine, we call it. Last slide. Thank you, guys. The patch and the wine. What does that mean? Why is he talking about the patch and the wine? Remember, Jesus taught with parables. He taught pictures, things that they recognized, things that they knew, pictures of the fields, the farms. This is something that they understood. Now, the whole point here was Matthew. Now, let's go back to the, the whole point. Matthew Levi, who was he? He was a man who many considered him a very serious sinner. But when the gospel came, what did he do with it? opened it, received it, it was his own, he was saved, he began to proclaim the good news to those around him. Got it? That's, that's the point. Now, based on that point, then the parables make sense. The Pharisees were the ones who had the religion, who had the form of godliness, who had the form of religion. Paul says there'll be people like that, especially in the last days, who have a form of religion but will deny the power, will deny really the power 
that God wants to do in our lives. What's the power? It's the gospel. The new wineskin, I'm sorry, the new wine here is the gospel. The new wine is the gospel. The wineskins are people who receive it, who are willing to receive it. New wineskins. What are the old, so he, basically it's the garment. It's the garment. Why and who are the Pharisees then? The Pharisees are the old wineskins. When the gospel came to their ears, they said, oh no, we don't need it. They would say, the old one is better, verse 39. The old one is better. Why? They had set themselves up in a form of religion, in their structure, in legalism, to the degree that they had no room for God. It's not that they didn't know the scriptures. Oh, they knew it. In fact, when you talk about the, the Gospels and you read the stories, many times Jesus is talking parables and teaching from the Old Testament, and it's the disciples who don't get it. Jesus has to explain it to them. Look, guys, come here. This is what it means. Okay, go read it. Okay, got it? Okay, good. The Pharisees knew it. The Pharisees knew that what Jesus was saying was true, but he was also referring it to them. <laughs> they got mad at him because... He was pointing their hypocrisy out. But they understood him perfectly. It's not that the Pharisees didn't know. It's that they, they were not willing to accept the new, wine skin, the, the, the new wine. The new wine is the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual life. It's the life of the Spirit that God wants to give us. It's not an old form of godliness with no power. It is the life of the Spirit. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes us, that transforms us, that makes us born again by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that pleases God through the Spirit. It's no longer through the efforts of men. Remember, uh, the, the old covenant, Jeremiah says, was in tablets of stone. Okay, this is stones here. Tablets of stone. You see it? Got it? Okay. The reason why it was in stones was because it was symbolizes that it was, it, was, it was standard, it was there, but also <laughs> that the law would also kill you. What do you mean, kill us? Well, what would happen if you broke the first commandment? What would happen if you had an image of a god and you began to worship it? What would happen if you had other gods and you proclaimed to be from Israel or you got caught in some sinful, immoral lifestyle? The, the punishment in the Old Testament is still being done in some Muslim countries, the stoning. The stones that the law was in were the stones that they picked up to kill people that missed or failed to live by the law. Still done today. You see Muslim countries, when a woman's caught in adultery, they stone her to death. Now, the Bible says that's the old covenant. The old covenant, when you, for, when you did not meet the standard, that the sin had to be dealt with, and the sin was death. That's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. The same law that was in stones inflicted death, literally inflicted death. But the Bible says the new covenant, the life of the spirit, the gospel, it doesn't kill you that way. It brings life. It actually causes you to be born again. The law kills because you, forget, you did not meet the standard. It literally killed you. But eternally, you did not meet the standard. You were eternally lost. The new covenant comes in, and it brings life. You accept it. You believe it. You're born again. You have a life of the Spirit now. Is the law still there? Yeah. Can you meet the law and the standards? 
by the, by the spiritual life, by the grace of God, you're able to meet God's standard because Christ died for you and he paid the penalty for that sin that you committed. That's how we meet the standard. The Bible says in the book of Romans that through love, through love you fulfill the law. Like, well, What do you mean by that? Well, it's the love of Christ. It's the love of Jesus. It's the life of the spirit that we're walking in that we can fulfill God's standard for us. Do we sin? Yes. Do we fall short? Absolutely. But it's no longer death by the law. It is now life of the spirit. The Pharisees had the old wineskin. They were the old wineskin. They were the wineskin that had the formality, the structure, the, the regulations of Judaism. They could not handle the new, the, the new covenant. They couldn't handle the life of the spirit. And so when the life of the spirit came, they, they rejected it. They said, the old one's better. And they died in their sins, as Jesus would say. But the new one, the new wineskin, those who can accept it, who is the new wineskin? The picture here, Matthew. Those who can accept it and believe it, there'll be life-transforming power that not only are you going to have the wine skin, I mean, uh, the wine, the new wine, but you'll be able to share it with those who are around you. That's the point. The point is the Pharisees would not go to the ends of the earth to bring salvation to people. They would get stuck in their own religious ways. They got stuck in their own pharisaical ways. Oh, what a danger that is to every single one of us. And I'll leave you with this. We would actually say, you know, Pastor, I want to be the new wineskin. I think we'll all agree to that. In fact, uh, if, we, if we say the we're old wineskin, then we'll burst. Because it says when the new wine, when the new wine comes, it's going to burst. I hope nobody here wants to burst. But all of us wants to have the new wine. All of us want to be the new wineskin. The story in Christianity is very much the same as in Judaism. Churches, structures, we have things, regulations that have very much looked like old Judaism to the degree that the, Paul said that there's a form of godliness that will be at the end of days, when Jesus, before Jesus comes, will be a, a form of godliness among people, a form of religion. They'll, 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 they'll have not heard about the Holy Spirit's life-transforming power. They will just think that it's just rules and regulations and live like the old covenant. But in reality, the new wine has come. And Jesus said, and Paul said, they will deny the power thereof. It's the gospel. There are people today in churches that will deny the very gospel that they claim to believe in. They will deny the very existence of the spiritual life even though they call themselves Christians. There are people in churches today that would, uh, would, would even deny that there is a holiness that we have to live up to. There's a holiness, there's a standard of holiness God wants us to have in our lives. They just think it's, well, whatever, just, you know. And, and, and they come to a great surprise because they cannot live on, with the new wine. The new wine changes you. The new wine transforms you. The new wine gives you victory over sin. And it's the life of the spirit that God wants us to have. There was a Pharisee. His name was Paul the Apostle. Saul became Paul. He said, those things that I used to account for my righteousness, born on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, according to the law, impeccable. He was just standard, was perfect, he thought. And then he met Jesus, 
and you realize he's so short of the glory of God, it wasn't even funny. And he says, for all those things, I count them as rubbish. I count them as lost. I count them as the word in reality. I don't hate to be in any way insulting to anybody, but the word is like a refuse. It's basically uh, dung. Uh, Those things are count them as dung in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, to walking in the Spirit, to following him, to walking with the Lord. All the things, all the regulations that I live with, all the formalities and religious legalism that I live with are nothing compared to when I met him and he changed me. And he changed me from the inside out. That's a Pharisee who lived that way. But now he lived for the power of God. He lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. And my friend, he became a new wineskin. All of us today could be new wineskins. All of us. The new wine is available to everyone who will receive it. Well, Pastor, I think I'm a new wineskin. Great. Then that new wine will transform you and change you to reach those who are on the outskirts. Why do you mean? The people, the sinners, the tax collectors. Who will reach them? Who will go for them? Who will go after them? The point of Matthew was that he, would new, he was a new wineskin and he went out. <laughs> Actually, he invited them in, but he went out and witnessed to them because the new wine was there. It changes them. And I hope it changes us. I'll leave you with the story. You can close your Bible. The Church of England, way back, 1700s, Church of England um, had become such a structured religious organization. And there was a couple of guys who wanted to go and take the gospel out. They realized that we have this power, we have this treasure. Why are we sharing it with other people? Why are we just have to... And then they had regulations. You couldn't preach in certain places. You couldn't share in certain places. You couldn't go out of the church and share it. And there's a guy named John and Charles Wesley and a man named George Whitfield. And they said, you know what? I see these coal miners all around England, coal miners, coal, you know, the the miners. Nobody's talking to them. Nobody's sharing the news with them. And the Church of England said, well, we have our laws, and we can't share in certain places, and that's one of them, because they're kind of on the outskirts. You know, they're they're born on the other side of the tracks. Uh, The Church of England had become a very wealthy, middle-class institution, and they had no room for the lost, for the poor, for the destitutes, for those who had not heard the gospel. And they made regulations on the, on the preachers not to go out and, and, and share with them. Well, John and Charles Wesley said, you know what? We must obey God, not men. And George Whitfield said, I'm going to ride my horse, and I'm going to preach all through the towns, all through the coal mines. And a revival happened to England, a revival that hasn't been seen to this day, a change among the coal miners. They heard the gospel. They heard that they, they knew that they were sinners. These were people that, uh, if you knew the conditions, I don't, I don't get all the details. I can tell you details later. But all the conditions that they lived under, the, 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 the working hours, kids working 12-hour days, uh, dying at such an early age because of the, 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 the pulmonary diseases and all the stuff, they got into drinking. They got into a moral lifestyle. And Charles Wesley and John Wesley went out and shared the gospel, and boy, did it change England. Boy, did it transform how England looked, the changes, because now the gospel was going to a people who had never heard it. They were the lost, they were the destitute, they were the ones who nobody wanted to go to. I'm praying today 
because in our nation there are people like that. There are people who are destitute, lost, have no way, they're basically outcasts. Nobody wants to go to them. Who are they? You know who they are in your own life, in your own society. There's people like that. And God forbid that we have become a middle-class organization that just have our rules and regulations of not to tell only certain people, only certain ways. I pray that doesn't happen to us. I pray that every single one is a new wineskin today. And that wine, that new wine percolating inside of your heart to say, why are we keeping this to ourselves? Matthew said, I'm going to make a banquet, and I'm going to bring all my friends to meet Jesus. Sounds simple enough to do. I'm not going to share how to do it, because I think the Lord needs to guide each and every one of us, and as a church together, how to do it. But are there people that nobody's reaching that we should reach? Is the gospel the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe? I believe it. I do. I, I, that's what we spent so much time teaching and reaching uh, with the Bible because it's the only thing that would change. I pray today we seek the Lord, and I pray today you become a new wineskin, ready to give the new wine. God has the new wine. He wants to give it to us. It's the life of the Spirit. He wants to enhance, enhance our message, enhance our ministry, but we need to go. Let's pray. Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, I ask you, Lord, for your grace tonight. Lord, it is very simple to see that, Lord, churches in America, we've forgotten what new wineskin and new wine is all about. Lord, I pray that today, by the reading of this text, Lord, we would be changed into a new person, a new wine, a new wineskin. Lord, we don't want to be the old garment. We don't want to be the old wineskin. We want to be the new wineskin that says, Lord, give us the new wine. Oh, Lord, give us the life of the Spirit. Oh, Lord, help us not to be stuck in formalities and religious things that have nothing to do with the gospel, but everything to do with politics, not with the gospel. Lord, change us and bring us to our knees as we pray for those who are lost and destitute. Lord, please change our hearts, Lord. We don't want to be wine, uh, old wineskins that will burst, but a new wineskin, Lord, that can hold the new wine, that can give it out, the life of the Spirit, the life that Jesus promised us, that out of your innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. Oh, Lord, we desire that. And as a church, Lord, we pray and ask that you would work in each one of us as you see fit, Lord. Work in each one of us, Lord to change us into that new wine skin. Please, Lord, we ask. We pray, we beseech you, Lord. We don't want this message to just be redundant. But, Lord, it will change us, maybe a little today, a little tomorrow, until, Lord, we're fully immersed in that new wine to give it out. Lord Jesus, you went to the lost, to the poor, to the destitutes, but perhaps that's where we need to go. They need to hear it, too. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed after this song. God bless you guys. May you become new wineskins every day. Amen.